How might we learn from the recent Human Rights Annual Report published by the TDSB? Today on the show, I speak with education activist and parent advocate, Alexis Dawson. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. When the recent TDSB Human Rights Report revealed, and I quote, that race or race-related grounds is the most frequent ground of complaint received by the Human Rights Office, making up 54% of all complaints. Alexis Dawson was an obvious person I wanted to talk to. She is the current community co-chair of the Black Student Achievement Community Advisory Committee. She is a school council co-chair at her children's school, the former TDSB Ward 9 trustee, a DEI consultant, and an all-around thought leader in our community. In this conversation, we speak to the data in this report that shows that students who self-identify as being Black, Indigenous, and Indigenous spirituality practicing students and gender non-conforming students are much less inclined to feel that school rules are applied fairly to them. And we go beyond this 128-page document to better understand recent moments Alexis has personally experienced that highlight the importance of dismantling anti-Black racism and hatred in all its forms. This is a powerful, honest, and important conversation about our present tense in education, but also the future of our schools. Please welcome to the show, Alexis Dawson. Alexis Dawson, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I'm really, really looking forward to getting to talk to you. You are a busy woman and you've been making the rounds recently. Um, So just to start by saying thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Let's start by having you introduce yourself. I like having people on the show say who they are, where you live, and what you do. Sure. Uh, I am, well, my name is Alexis Dawson. I live in Toronto in the Oakwood Vaughan neighborhood, uh, which is just, just south of Little Jamaica. And I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant and a former school board trustee at the Toronto District School Board. I also am the current uh, community co-chair of the Black Student Achievement Community Advisory Committee at the TDSB, and I do a lot of uh, work and advocacy in public education, specifically around equity and Black student achievement. So I've been following you for a little while. We're in the same neighborhood group on Facebook, and you post often in there, and everything that you post, I just love, and I like it very much, and uh, you just have a really wonderful lens on how to see issues. So I was really excited when I saw you commenting on the recent report that was released by the TDSB. Um, So I'm really glad that you could come on the show because you, I can't even imagine all the different hats that you've worn in the TDSB over the years. You've been a trustee, Mm -hmm. your parent council co-chair, you are a parent. I also read that you are a supply teacher. There's very few things that you haven't done within the board. I'm wondering when you first read the recent report that was released, the Human Rights Annual Report, 228-page document. Did anything about the report surprise you when you saw it? I can't say that anything really surprised me, but I'm always affected by the data around um, anti-Black racism and just incidents of racism and hate in general. And, you know, it was a lot to process to read that um, 
54, 54% of complaints had something to do with racism. It's a huge number. And I, I'm really glad that you said that it didn't surprise you, but it does still affect you. What has your experience been in the many different roles in the TDSB? When you heard that number, were you like, I actually thought it would be higher or yeah, I can't believe it's that high. Like where were you when you actually saw the statistics? So, you know, there's still some confusion on my part as to where the data comes from, because I know that when the TDSB um, beefed up their human rights department a few years ago, they had quite an extensive backlog. So it's unclear to me as to whether the cases that were examined that were assigned to each of the years that they said they the incidents occurred, whether they were a part of the backlog or whether it was new information. So that's something that I'm still, or new complaints rather. So that's something I'm still trying to find out more information on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I think that in the road to improvement, we will only see more complaints. Mm. So, you know, the the number of complaints, I think it was, you know, 15 race-related complaints between 2018 and 2019. And then once they got to 2019, 2020, it was 300 something. Mm. So, you know, I don't think that it's just that racism is be is there's a resurgence of it per se. I think it's that pe- people are more aware, staff are more aware as to how to name it and how to report it. But still, the mechanisms for reporting are not well known. Mm-hmm. So as they increase that uh, awareness, they're going to see more complaints. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I wonder too if there's way more awareness in the last five years about anti-black racism and about what this actually means. And I, you know, when I was reading it, I'm like, I wonder if this is really about education, that it's working, that people mm-hmm. are becoming more aware of it and can name things more accurately rather than incidences of bullying or harassment. They are even more clear in how they are tagging some of these issues. Does that resonate with you? So I think so to a degree, but there's still, the data needs to, needs to be mined a bit more still. So for example, you know, part of, one of the consultations that I was a part of recently with the human rights department since this report came out, they discussed the fact that around half of the complaints were not code-based violations and that they were more likely employee services issues that had just been allowed to fester for so long and that people did not feel that they had uh, a way to complain other than through the human rights department. Mm -hmm. So I think they need to do more mining of the data in terms of the employee services related to complaints to determine how many specifically were around anti-Black racism. And, you know, they need to determine which neighborhoods, which schools, you know, they really need to disaggregate that and flesh that out more 
Um, and it might require going through each case one by one in order to glean that information. But I do think it's very important because if you have a particular issue concentrated in a certain neighborhood or even a certain school or learning center in the TDSB, then you can ha take a more targeted approach at, at addressing it. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, even just the data will lead people towards the next steps. That's an mm -hmm. important thing. I was surprised I was reading about a recent Zoom panel discussion that you were on, the Real mm -hmm. Talk Equity and Education panel that was hijacked by racists. Yeah. Tell me more about that and what was going through your mind when you actually realized what was going on. Yeah, it was interesting because at first I didn't know what was going on. I, I didn't know that Zoom bombing was a thing that I've now since learned that it is quite prevalent. Um, it wasn't... I was not the panelist speaking at that point. I'd already made my presentation. So someone else was speaking and they did an excellent job of immediately responding to what was happening. So much so that I actually thought it was planned at first, you wow. know, just to show what an interruption can look like to show how we're, you know, constantly gaslit, spoken over, um, you know, and, and undermined in our story, telling our stories of anti-Black racism. So, you know, at first it didn't occur to me what was going on, but then it continued to happen repeatedly. And my thoughts were, I hope this doesn't shut it down. I hope we can continue to use this as a teachable moment. And in the end, you know, there were multiple disruptions because what happened is someone would come in, they'd get, you know, kicked out of the meeting and then either somebody who was already in the meeting waiting for that to happen um, to start their own disruptive behavior. So, you know, that, that was a factor. Sorry, I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I, my understanding is for people who don't know the actual thing, because it was on Facebook and it was talked about, but people were like taking over the screen and they were playing yeah. like Welcome to the Jungle. I don't know if there's yeah. other things that they were doing, but they were like blaring music and mm -hmm. they were doing this like over and over again, from my understanding. It was blaring music and they were doing it over and over again. And they were, uh, you know, trying to essentially shut down the conversation from happening. And the organizers, you know, kicked everybody out, out that they could. And then they restricted access. So they didn't admit anyone else new to the meeting. And, you know, the conversation continued. And I'm glad that it did. And it was used as an example, you know, we had some media, media coverage around it. And I think it was good for creating awareness. And did you hear from people who were participating in the event to say, I'm really grateful with how you handled that? Like, was there feedback after? Yes. Like, what did you hear from people who were just like, innocently bystanding such a ridiculous thing? Right. I think, you know, there was that expression of shock and uh, disbelief that that could happen on zoom but it again it further reinforced the point of why you know of how anti-black racism is is a problem and why the work of dismantling it is so important and that we can't let ourselves um be intimidated from doing the work 
And then, so I did get positive feedback from the way we handled it. Yes. I'm really glad to hear that. And even just the fact that the person who was speaking at that time was able to actually like think on their feet and activate and to say, Hey, look at what's going on right now, rather than let that shut them down internally. I think that's so powerful. And Mm -hmm. as everybody watching that, I can imagine saw such a great example of how to stand up because that is really hard to name something as it's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did follow up with the TDSB and they they did call me actually Mm -hmm. to check in and see how I was doing. Uh, And I did ask the question, is this something that happens? Mm -hmm. And the response was, yes, it does from time to time. And it is always anti-Black racism or anti-Semitism. Wow. So those were the, the two really big issues. And, you know, we're we're seeing a resurgence in those two things or an insurgence more so than ever. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. There's so many things that have been happening lately. And I hear mostly white people say, like, I'm so surprised by this. Like the insurrection happened and people on social media were like, I'm so surprised. Is it okay for white people to say they're surprised by any of this now? Like, doesn't part of me feels like that's just such a lead for people's ignorance, but can we still be surprised now? I think that if that's your reality, that you're surprised, then that is okay to admit it. It's not okay in general, but it's okay to admit it with an action oriented statement along with that. Mm. I can't believe that this is happening. I'm so surprised. I am going to X, Y, Z to educate myself and do better. So if there's a, you know, an action oriented statement or a, a call to action for oneself, then that is at least a way forward for Mm -hmm. that individual rather than just an empty expression of shock. Yeah, that's a really good, powerful reframe. I think to acknowledge that surprise may be there and now do something, like actually Mm -hmm. name that and then move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, I read recently in our Facebook group uh, about an incident in our neighborhood and it's not the only one and I'm sad to say it probably won't be the last, but you shared about an incident involving a young student and a man and a crossing guard. The crossing guard had to interfere in a racist moment. And Mm -hmm. you wrote the post, um, the attacker, my understanding was arrested and it was turned over to the police. When you wrote that, what was your hope with communicating this to the community? Um, Well, there were a couple of, of things I was hoping would happen as a result of communicating. So the first is that people would know the business and stay away from it, you know, for for safety reasons as as well as on principle. Because the man who had attacked the young boy works in this business. That's what I understand. It's a family-owned business and the man is a well-recognized person in the community. Yeah. Yes. And and the business is directly across from the school back entrance. So it is the variety store where the students and their families would have been, you know, going for candy and treats after school. It's at the end of my street. So I sent my nine-year-old son there frequently to, you know, buy milk and eggs and things like that. So, you know, it was, I wanted to spread the word as well so that people could 
assume some accountability on their ends for having these kinds of conversations at home because, you know, it was one boy that was attacked, but I counted more than 20 students in the video. So the man who was yelling the N-word, um, he was yelling it at all of those students. It wasn't just to the one kid. And there were students there as young as eight or nine. So very young children, at least from what I could see, probably possibly younger if they weren't, you know, in the videos that I saw. And I wanted to educate people on the harm, not just of that overtly racist act, but of the, you know, the harm caused by the bystanders who did nothing. So out of all of the people who were on the street in broad daylight at, at 3.15 p.m., only our, you know, tiny little five foot two crossing guard intervened. And, you know, it's not a call to action to say, you know, people need to put themselves in harm's way. There were lots of ways that people could have intervened. They could have reassured the kids that they were phoning 911. They could have asked the students if they were okay. They could have told the man to stop talking them to them like that. So, you know, there wasn't only an opportunity for physical intervention. There could have been much more support offered to the students by the community. And that was not offered. And I felt, uh, you know, duty to speak up and to, to demand of our community to do better. And part of that is talking to our kids at home as well. So, you know, I had to sit down with my kids and explain to them why we will no longer shop at that store and, you know, the unfair treatment that the students who were um, targets were subjected to by the store owner. So, you know, it was a good, I shouldn't say good, it was an opportunity for a teachable moment at home. Uh, our students need to know that they're supported. They need to know that the community uh, cares about their well-being. I'm sure several of their parents were on those community forums that I posted in. And it was really unfortunate that many of the commenters on those posts chose to empathize with the aggressor rather than, to, you know, to express concern for student well-being. And I, that really disappoints me. And it also hurts me for the parents of the students who were impacted uh, who may have been reading. So, you know, it, it was an unfortunate situation, but I think the more and more that we can talk about and name things directly that are happening in our community, particularly when children are involved, um, hopefully it will open people's minds and hearts to doing the work of dismantling anti-Black racism in their own backyards. Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful moment and I'm really glad that you shared about it, even though in many ways it had like quote unquote resolved, but just to allow people in our neighborhood to see what is actually happening for students and that this is real, this is not separate from us, like you said, it's in our own backyard. I also was really touched by your suggestion to thank the crossing guard, like we walk by these folks every day and maybe say a quick hello, but you know, in many ways, she risked her life to mm -hmm. help this child. And it was obviously risky, even more risky now during the pandemic. 
But for her to interrupt that was huge. And it showed the students, hey, there is somebody here that is looking out for you. Um, so I, I really, I was touched that you said like, please thank her. Like, please thank her when you walk past mm -hmm. her. Even if you didn't know that it happened, just say like what you did was really important. That I think is a huge small action that people can take. I think it's important to positively reinforce that behavior um, and to do it in a way that doesn't amplify the, you know, saviorism component over the, you know, horrible experience that the students went through and also their quick action because you know she did intervene but the students also videotaped narrated the situation as they were videotaping um you know as when a, a certain by a certain point they realized, oh no, we need to hang up and actually phone 911 now. So the thought process for, you know, nine to 14 year olds to have gone through that versus, you know, the, the adults standing by, they deserve accolades as well for quickly and appropriately responding to the situation. Um, and I do, you know, I, not to dismiss what the crossing guard did. I absolutely feel that she deserves to be lauded. And I think that the community needs to understand that, um, you know, it's important to respond in some way. And I, those kids will remember her. Those kids will remember this woman who stood up for them. And, you know, I don't think that the issue is closed because for those students the, the that incident will have a lasting impact on them forever so they will remember um the crossing guards stepping in but they will also remember the people just standing there doing nothing yeah that's a really sad truth and mm -hmm. I, I think you know the courage that the students had to take out their phones because sometimes that even escalates the situation more so for them to see nope this is necessary I need to do this right now is mm -hmm. so brave and so important like I don't know yeah I, I don't know if that was an element of fear or if those students were just responding and reacting but it obviously like it helped document the situation appropriately uh, but it was also, you know, and this is the thing, kids are involved. I absolutely would never share the video, but, you know, the other school council chair and I could speak to it. And it was really heartbreaking to hear the kids not just narrating the situation as it unfolded, but to, to hear and see them addressing the bystanders and asking for help and those people not responding at all. Those people either saying, is everything okay? And then walking right by when students said, no, it's not. Or they're directly saying, look at that man. He kicked that kid. They were actually saying, that man is a child predator. He's attacking children. Look at that man. That kid needs help. And they were so crystal clear in articulating the situation as it unfolded and with people right beside them who ignored. Oh my God. So, you know, parent like watching that must have just like gutted you. Like I can only imagine it enraged that. me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it enraged me. And it was, you know, very interesting to see because the 
the um, the statement put out on social media was jointly written by myself and the other school council co-chair who was a white man. And only I was named and attacked on any of those f- threads. When he also chimed in and replied, he his responses were glossed over. Nobody chose to argue with him, but they you know, chose to argue with myself and another black woman and, you know, the very few people of color who were on that thread or on those threads. Yeah, that, I mean, it doesn't shock me and yet it's still infuriating. And I feel like, you know, the white people that put their names on those documents have even more responsibility to step in and interrupt that and to say like, hey, why aren't you arguing with me? Or like <laughs> sticking their right. neck out there more to to divert the attention away. I think that that is like the smallest thing that people can do to help be a better accomplice in this work. Mm-hmm. Um, I follow you on Twitter. I love everything that you post. I get very excited everything that you say. <laughs> um, you wrote recently, um, I'll just quote you back to you. I hope that's not super weird, no. but you wrote, as much as I harp on TDSB at board level, they've acted quickly to engage students and families on the rise of anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism globally and in schools. Still mm-hmm. work to be done at the school level, but this is a move in the right direction. So, yeah, do you want to? I feel like you're sure. Just jump so in there. that um, that comment was there was an event put on by the TDSB that was jointly to address the rise in anti-black racism and anti-Semitism that we are seeing, you know, on several fronts in the world, and. Oh. You know, what was what I meant by the board level response is I do feel like through events, policies, procedures, the board is beginning to address um, anti-black racism, but there's still a lot of work to be done in schools. So I'll continue to harp about <laughs> on that part. I'll continue to harp. But, you know, the the interesting thing with that event specifically, I'm not sure if you heard, but my it was geared to students grade 6 to 12. And my son's grade 4 class actually attended it. So there were over 60,000 students in the TDSB who participated in this virtual event. And when they opened up the chat at one point for questions, somebody wrote the N-word in it. So right in that event. And, you know, the I did hear, I didn't attend the event myself, but I did hear from a number of people that immediately, once again, the um, moderators of the event responded quickly, used it as a teachable moment. And my son's class anyway, used it as a teachable moment as well. So the teacher spoke with them about it and, and they had more of an in-depth conversation. And many of the students, including him, were very impacted. You know, she said that he had tears in his eyes when it happened because it's one thing to hear mommy talking about it versus, you know, having your own experience and feeling defenseless and not knowing how to be a good ally, how to, how to respond. So I think it's, I mean, it's powerful that you're saying that you're noticing things happening and obviously the work is just beginning. There's still so much to do. 
If you were given an unlimited budget and unlimited power in the TDSB, Mm -hmm. what kinds of things might you start doing if you had power at the helm to start designing to move more in the right direction or further in the right direction? Right. That's a great question. First thing I would do is I would leverage the newly formed policies and procedures that do address discrimination and hate by communicating them properly. (laughs) So I would invest in the communications team. I would invest in the website and make the website more comprehensive and easy to navigate. I would invest in the development of simple visual resources in plain language to help families understand how to navigate the system and how to access resources and access their rights, frankly. So that is communication and investing in digital platforms to, to, as a medium of communication, that's, that would be the first investment. The second investment would be um, the TDSB has well, approved last year the formation of a Center of Excellence for Black Student Achievement. So that will be a physical location um, at a at existing TDSB site, they're still determining what that will, where it will be, but it is to be staffed by, you know, educators, social workers, community support workers, to provide a supportive network to Black students and families in anywhere from home, you know, extra homework help to helping them navigate the system and address inequities that they face or discrimination that they face. So that department, however, I fear will become a catch-all, a catch-all primarily, you know, torn between supporting Black students and families and educating white people (laughs) on the impact of racism. So I would invest more heavily in that center of excellence for Black student achievement so that there could be more people who are developing resources and delivering training to staff around equity and anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism. Um, So yeah, I mean, those are the two major kind of areas of improvement that I would would invest in immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and also, providing supports for parents and paying them to attend. That's Mm -hmm. another barrier is that oftentimes activating resources requires people to take time off Mm -hmm. and that's not always possible. So supporting black parents in a way where they're not missing out on their income um, in order to access that support. Yeah, that's, that's huge. I mean, those would be really significant dial changers. I would like to give you all the power and all the resources. <laughs> I think you'd be a wonderful person to be at the helm for this. So let's fast forward and imagine a future, I don't know, let's just say 10 years in the future from now, and more work has happened. All these things have been put into place. Obviously, the data will change. This huge report from the TDSB put out by the Human Rights Council, that will change. But on the ground, like in the lived experience of students' day-to-day lives, what do you think will be different with all this work being done 10 years from now? What do you hope our schools look like? 
I mean, there is definitely, you know, the human rights report, I think it's important to know is mainly a, a staff complaint exercise. So, you know, in working toward equity overall, I think, you know, we would see changed student outcomes. So you would see more black and indigenous students specifically on academic pathways. Um, you would see better outcomes, lower dropout rates, lower suspension and expulsion rates um, for black and indigenous students specifically. And more positive responses around attitudes toward school and school climate reflected in the student census. So right now, black students, for instance, feel accepted in their home environments as per their responses on the census, but they do not feel accepted in their school environments. So that is something that really needs to shift and change. So it's a combination of data change as well as, um, you know, that anecdotal information, I think, provided by students. So, and ultimately I would be getting less phone calls, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I, I would be getting less phone calls from desperate parents on, you know, asking what, what they should be doing to address, um, challenges that their families are facing and, you know, direct racism that their families have faced and their children have faced. So, you know, I think, I think there's a long way to go before that happens, but I do think that the more awareness and, you know, the fact that this is all considered to be newsworthy now, mm. um, I think that that will help with the accountability piece and holding the board accountable to measurable change. Mm -hmm. I hope you get more phone calls about people thanking you for the work that you're doing <laughs> instead of people calling desperately needing advice, people calling you to say, you are amazing. Thank you for changing the game. I think that would be a good sign in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, and it's not just education, right? Like there's an intersection between public education, public health, criminal justice. There are all these different, um, public services that that have their own piece of accountability to improved outcomes. And so I don't think that education can be fixed in a silo. Yeah. It all has to happen in, in partnership be, between all of the various systems. So you're not going to have improvement in, you know, the outcomes of Black people overall without changing each and every one of those systems. Yeah, that's that's huge. I'm glad you said that. You are the co-chair for the Black Student Achievement Advisory Committee. I hope I got that right. It is a lot of words yeah. in once. Um, <laughs> tell me about the work that you're doing with them because you, again, do incredible things, but I want to hear more about that role that you have. Sure. So that that committee in particular is a TDSB committee. So our job is to provide recommendations to the board around policies and procedures. So, you know, if they were looking to change certain aspects of the human rights policy at the board, they would come, staff would come to our meetings, staff would present to us and get feedback in a you know, community consultation sort of forum. And then 
once we have made our recommendations as a committee, I would then go and present them at a monthly standing meeting at the board. Important and so powerful. And you mentioned to me before that you're looking for parents to help some committee work. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so we do have some openings in the committee. The committee is made up of parents, public education advocates, and you know people from different sectors. So we've got legal, policing, um, various organizations that support um, black families in the community. So for instance, Tropicana, Tropicana Community Services is one of our um, members. And so it's important that we have, uh, you know, a wide array of representation in order to get a fulsome picture of what, you know, the policy changes are that are needed. And if people listening want to get involved, how can they find you and say that they are interested and keen to help out? Sure, uh, they can contact Oh gosh, they can contact me. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, they can, they can reach out to me. Uh, they can respond to our ad. I can provide you a link to our ad yeah. as well. Um, and yeah, I'm happy for people to contact me and ask any questions that they have. I mean, one of the things that I really enjoy about being on the committee is, is um, absolutely the support of the members, but also the quick access to staff. So when I do receive complaints from random people in the community, I always pass those things on to staff, whether it be to handle them directly or sometimes even just as an FYI, mm -hmm. so that they're, they're aware of the very specific incidences that are happening in the community because you know this data collection is very broad based you don't get as much anecdotal information so it's helpful to understand mm -hmm. you know what what communities are actually dealing with and what students are dealing with in schools so you're, it's a great staff group and a great community group to be a part of you're also a DEI consultant with schools and boards and groups. I love that. How can people hire you and get you to come and support their groups? Like, how does that actually work? Sure. Um, so you can email me <laughs> at alexis at alexisdawson.ca. Uh, I do diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting uh, for private as well as public uh, organizations. Um, the mainstay of my business, though, I would say is um, running training and education workshops for parents through school councils. So I do um, anti-black racism training workshops. And I also work together as a facilitator with um, administrators, staff and parents on developing actionable equity goals in their school improvement plans. So I'm a really big fan. I'm a believer in, um, you know, it takes a village in a school to raise the children and to contribute to a positive school climate. And that requires collaboration from all stakeholders. And often the missing piece is parents. Mm. So I think it's really important for parents to have that support, administrators to have that support too, in 
you know, working together and collaborating with parents because, you know, administrators are teachers. Like they're not, you know, they haven't gone to the PR school of facilitation (laughs) of parents, right? So um, I think it's important for them to have that support too, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in their professional development. I love how community-minded you are, like just in terms of the many different hats you wear and the many different ways that you're supporting this work, both as a co-chair, as a parent, as a consultant, you know, there's so many different pieces that you're looking at here. And I think that's so powerful. I'm so grateful that you're doing this kind of work. Um, Are you ready for the ticket out the door? A bunch of random questions totally unrelated to our conversation. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Okay. Sure. Uh, what is your favorite book to read to your children? So I really love the um, board book, Three Little Birds. Mm. And, um, you know, even though my kids are older, it's something that we still sing together Um there's also another one and I forget the name of the author, but it's called all the world. Mm, and yes, yes, yes. I, yeah, we also love that book too. Um, you know, I always go back to those books that brought us closer as a family. Mm, I love that. Mm-hmm. What is something that many people get wrong or misunderstand about you? You know, I think that there's this label and I don't believe that it's just assigned to me, but the angry black woman and that, you know, that really affects me because, you know, it's used as a way of tone policing or silencing people. And as far as I'm concerned, it's okay. It's okay for me to be angry about racism. Um, It's okay for me to try to harness those conversations in a productive way um, to, to call me angry or to tone police me. It's almost like an accusation that I am taking it to another level beyond discussion. And as though my discussion is the equivalent of an act of violence, similar to, you know, the attacker in that situation with the kids where people are so off-put oftentimes by conversations around race that it's very easy for them to dismiss me as someone who's angry rather than someone who's, yeah, justifiably angry, but in a way where I'm trying to channel it in order to educate and involve our community. So I would say that's a big misconception about me is that I'm actually walking around angry all the time, not that angry. Yeah. And if you know, you're not going to get angry about racism, then something's wrong. You're probably benefiting from it. Like they're really, people need to look at why they're not angry. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is currently on your nightstand? Some change and a little um, mini backpack for a doll with various (laughs) trinkets inside. Yes. I so relate to just a random (laughs) collection of things there. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Uh, the first thing I do, well, I am not a morning person. (laughs) So the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is immediately throw on clothes and get my kids out the door because my husband has already fed everybody. (laughs) He's already put snacks in the bag. He's already got everybody dressed. So I'm, you know, I'm the parent that shows up late to the party and gets everyone out the door because the cold walk to school. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I do on a weekday. On a weekend, it is similar, except I get up way later <laughs> and then have a coffee and enjoy family time. Mm-hmm. I love that your children actually let you sleep in. That is delightful. I'm glad they do that. Yeah. You know what? The turning point is nine years old. I'm telling you like my son now, um, yeah, this didn't happen a year ago. So he will on a weekend, they get up, he makes him and his sister breakfast. They play game. They, so, you know, when I say my husband's husband's getting up earlier than me, yes, absolutely on weekdays, but on weekends, you know, if he wants to get up early, it's by choice because they are very, they self-manage pretty well on the weekend mornings. It's definitely a difference when compared to just a year ago when we were having to trade off weekend mornings, like it's my sleep in tomorrow or negotiating that. So yeah, we don't have to really do that anymore. Oh, I love that. I can't wait. The Um, flip side of that though, (laughs) is that my son doesn't want to be read to at night anymore. He doesn't want to be put to bed anymore and that was the decision that didn't include me he just kind of you know which I'm happy for him for his independence I'm you know really glad to see that he enjoys and has a passion for reading on his own Mm. but I miss those snuggles those bedtime snuggles that they do happen still but you know it's infrequent it's usually when he's going through something Mm. yeah that's a hard it's a hard toss-up I don't know what I want to keep more Mm-hmm. What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? I'm, I'm this is such an unhealthy habit, but check my phone. <laughs> you and the rest of us. <laughs> I love that. Um, what's the most recent TV show you binged and loved? Oh, this is your outing me, but Bridgerton. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Oh my so God. delightful. Yes, I totally binged it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good, good choice. Pie or cake? Cake. Mm, Beach or mountains? Beach. Spring or fall? Spring. You're starting a podcast. Who would be your first three guests? Oh, do they have to be a living? (laughs) No, you can make you, it's your podcast. You can bring them up from the dead. I'd say. Okay. Okay. So my number one would definitely be Ella Fitzgerald. Yes. Um, that uh, Barack Obama, I actually mm. would be very, very interested in, in interviewing and as well, Malcolm X. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The last question I always ask every guest is what is the future of learning? So I think, you know, because I'm such a family engagement person, I think I'm all about that, um, you know, student voice and also parent voice and collaborating toward a common goal. Mm -hmm. So I would see the future of education involving more so of parents, students and educators and through a holistic approach. Ultimately, that benefits our our students and, you know, contributes to a positive school climate and positive student outcomes, hopefully. Those are perfect words to end on. Alexis Dawson, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your brain and your thoughts and your time. I so appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was fun. 
There is a treasure trove of resources in the show notes. If you want to connect with Alexis, be a parent on the Black Student Achievement Community Advisory Committee, or further your DEI journey with her as a consultant. Send me your show ideas, send me your feedback, send me your thoughts on the show. I'm here for it all. I'm on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow or Twitter at teach underscore tomorrow. And a massive thank you for those of you who are filling out the reviews. Giving a podcast a review is the equivalent of tipping your barista. It's small, it doesn't seem like a big deal, your spare change seems like it's so minor, but it's not. Those little drops in the bucket add up. I was actually having a really rough day and I saw a review that came in and it literally brought tears to my eyes. It means you are listening. These conversations matter to you and you're willing to share that back. While you're filling out a rating review for this show, I strongly encourage you to leave one for two or three other podcasts that you listen to. Every podcaster I know loves this. Drop your change into the cup and let it amount to something awesome. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep dismantling anti-Black racism in your own backyard. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.